something that the church through its tradition has developed. Jesus rebuked the religious leaders of his day and said, you hold to the traditions of your religion over the word of God, thereby nullifying the word of God and many such things you do. Uh, you know, you think, well, what's the big deal? Well, some of these traditions go so far inside Christianity that eventually people are going to find out their faults. So then because they hold to the tradition as though it were the word of God, when they realize the tradition is false and they throw the tradition away, they automatically throw the word of God away also. What is contained in here was recorded for us with a perfect accuracy. You know, the traditions of the church are neat, and I'm glad we have them. And let's sing angels we have heard on high, sweetly singing o'er the plain. But let's also understand that the scripture has a clarity within it that we need to hold to much more highly than the traditions of the church. Make sense to us all? So, <clears throat> verse 2, it says, Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. Now, a few things there. We hear a lot about Mary, and, and rightfully so, but Joseph is sometimes overlooked. Uh, being a just man. Uh, you know, as far as we read in the scripture, Mary had a message from an angel once. Joseph had four visitations from angels, right? Heard very distinctly and very clearly from the Lord and also showed immediate obedience to the things that the Lord communicated to him. Okay, this, this guy is a tremendous example to us in this scripture. Uh, when it says he's a just man, she's now declaring to the world that she's pregnant and that God has caused her to be pregnant. What we just read leads us to believe Joseph doesn't believe that. He believes that she has been impregnated by another human being, that a man has made her pregnant. Be it that she was raped, there's some of those rumors out there, or be it that she was unfaithful to the betrothal she was in, some imply that also. She was impregnated by God, causing her body to just simply form a child inside her. Joseph is taking the earthly approach and thinking, this poor woman is lying to me. One way or another, this isn't true. He's going to divorce her. He's going through the process of getting rid of her. But he wants to do it in a gracious way. He wants to do it in a way that doesn't embarrass her. That's very godly, right? He's, he's of the mindset like, I can't be with this woman. You know, she is unfaithful and... On top of that, she's being very deceptive. So I'm going to have to separate from her. That's going to leave a mark on his name also. Keep that in mind. But he's doing it quietly. He, you know, We suspect that maybe he was looking to take her to family members that were a distance away, sort of leave her there, file the divorcement, and be done quietly as he could, rather than, you know, in certain cases, they would stone a woman to death for having you know, betrayed the marriage. He's looking to be gracious. Proverbs 
tells us, right, that love covers a multitude of sins. This man has a relationship with God that causes him to want to be very gracious with this woman. There's a lot to consider about Joseph's conduct in this. So she's found to be child with child of the Holy Spirit, husband, uh, Joseph, her husband, being a just man, not wanting to make a public example of her, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Don't be afraid. Uh, I think that the scripture is telling us that Joseph's a lot like us, that he would give you all kinds of explanations for why he's taking these steps, but the root of the thing is fear. That there's a distrust, distrust of Mary, perhaps a distrust of God, you know, I thought this was a godly relationship. I thought this was the woman for the rest of my life. I thought you were putting me in this relationship. I was looking for your blessing in this relationship, in this marriage, in this family that was going to be formed. And the whole thing has come crashing down. Fear, according to the Holy Spirit, dominates Joseph's heart. And he's looking to obey the fear rather than God. Certainly, none of us is ever going to be faced with the same scenario as is described here but i guarantee there will be times where god will ask you to do something and from every outside perspective it's going to look like it's the wrong decision if you learn to hear clearly from the lord then in the process you'll also learn to overcome your fears and trust the lord for what he's asking you to do the blessing on the other end of it is immeasurable Okay, you know, you're looking at your life and thinking, you know, I don't see, you know, all that tremendous of a blessing. It's just I'm I'm weighing out the pros and the cons and trying to make a decision. And you're telling me to trust God. Well, here's the thing. Pros and cons weighed out by Joseph right here. Spare Mary an amazing amount of disgrace. He's going to marry this woman and keep her unto himself. If she had been left to her own, divorced in these communities at this time, uh, it's difficult to say how the circumstances would have played out. We are here today in this room, at least to a certain degree, partly because of Joseph's faithfulness to trust the Lord in these circumstances, to walk through them and let God provide and to care for them in this process. So, don't be afraid. Take Mary uh, as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Verse 21, and she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Uh, there's a significance there, for he shall save his people from their sins. The name Jesus is a compound name. Uh, it is God's name from the Old Testament, Yahweh, combined with the, the phrase or the, the word salvation. So it's Yahweh's salvation. If we were to transliterate it, right, uh, translating it accurately would probably give us 
uh, Joshua. If you transliterate it, taking their accent and pronunciation, it would probably be closer to Yeshua. Yahweh's salvation is what you're looking at. Joseph is going to name him Jesus because he's already been named Jesus by God the Father. In naming him, Joseph is adopting him as his own. Legally, right, if a man were in such a situation and is saying, yes, I'm marrying this woman, yes, she's giving birth to this child, but without even saying it, I'm not the father of this child, and I'm separating myself from the parental role of being a child, he would allow the woman to marry the child or to name the child. In this, the Lord is saying, number one, his name is already Jesus, so you don't get to pick the name Joe. And when you name this kid, you don't get to name him Joseph. You get to name him Jesus, which makes you his earthly father. It's a remarkable moment that Joseph embraces here to take Jesus unto himself and raise him and nurture him and care for him in this way. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. So he's referring to Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, where Isaiah said, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Again, Yeshua, God the Father, Yahweh's name combined with salvation, God is with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord, excuse me, aroused from sleep, uh, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife, and did not know her till she was brought, till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and she called, and he called his name Jesus. So again, the confirmation that Joseph named him Jesus, did not know her until he was born. Again, another tradition that the church has generated that Mary was a perpetual virgin. We know from the scripture that there were at least five, four brothers and there were two sisters because we don't know their names, the sisters, but we are told that they also had sisters. So this household is nine people that Joseph is taking care of by the time it's all done. We want to be careful not to embrace the traditions over the word of God, right? Mary, as honorable as she is, and, and, and let me just really emphasize that, this young woman is exemplary beyond measure, and I want to add to that, so isn't Joseph, God has chosen this couple and put them together in such a way that they stand out for all of history for us to follow as examples. They're really remarkable. I think certain denominations and branches of Christendom make far too much of Mary and Joseph. I think on the other end of the spectrum, much of Christianity denominations and branches make far too little of them. We really need to consider what the Lord is setting before us as examples. Humble 
simple people, right, who are so impoverished that when it comes time for them to dedicate Jesus, they bring the minimum sacrifice to the priests of turtle doves. They, they bring basically pigeons. They're supposed to bring a lamb, uh, but the, the scripture gives allowance that if they're too impoverished to do so, you can scrape together a nickel, essentially. Usually it was less than two pennies, and you can go buy two doves and bring them in and have them sacrificed in order to dedicate the child. And that's all they have when they arrive in the circumstances. So moving forward in this, the obedience that you see in Mary and Joseph now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Now to begin with, um, this is after the manger. Right? Again, traditions versus the truth of God's word. The manger scene has already happened. The wise men are going to arrive maybe as much as two years later. Okay, and we'll discuss that in a moment because they don't end up in the manger. It literally tells us here that they end up at the house where Mary and Joseph are living. So so we'll we'll break some of this down as we move forward. First, examine Herod, psychopath, to say the least. Okay, Herod the Great, remarkable figure in history. His construction projects still stand to this day and still function. The aqueduct and others still function in ways that we can't reproduce or we don't reproduce unless we were to go back and use the technologies that he formulated and used at that time. Really a remarkable man, but incredibly murderous. Uh, single-handedly responsible for thousands of Jews' deaths under his rule as he had authority in this place. He was feared mercilessly by the people. He, he was a tyrant of extraordinary measure. He insisted that he was of Jewish descent. There's some question there. But he labeled himself as an Idumean and followed some of the Jewish traditions, one of which was he never ate pork. So he, he ate other things that were not kosher, but he very specifically kept himself from pork, and he would always make the claim, I'm Jewish, so therefore I don't eat pork. Simultaneously, he personally, with his own hands, murdered three of his sons, right? Not like hired somebody else to do it. He actually killed his own sons. One of them we know he actually strangled with his own hands. Uh, he gained permission from Caesar to murder one of them because he held political position. So to kill him, he had to have permission to do so. Uh, he killed one of his own wives with his bare hands. So, you know, sort of guy you'd want to have hanging around. Caesar said in his writings that it was safer to be a pig in Herod's home than it was to be one of Herod's sons. Okay? Uh, crazy guy. Uh, really, really vile. Um, he had a, a strange delusion after he had killed his wife that he was seeing her ghost and that he was seeing her. Uh, his conscience was uh, torturing him. And he actually saw a woman at one point that he was convinced was her or a reincarnation of her. And uh, he 
was sexually intimate with her because he was convinced that this was somehow his wife that he had strangled to death. He did not know that she was a prostitute. And she was also carrying a sexually transmitted disease, which he acquired, which then killed him in the end. He was putrid in his smell because of the decomposition that was going on in his body while he was alive. They actually, it's recorded in history that guards were put on a one-hour rotation because they couldn't get within 10 feet of him for the stench and they couldn't bear to be even within 10 feet of him for more than an hour. Pleasant guy, to say the least, right? Murderous, psychopathic, disgusting human being who literally, in the end, was allowing himself to be declared as a god, and he fell down and burst open. And when he burst open and died, uh, he was filled with worms. Okay, that's not like just church uh, lore. That's history. This man was really, really wretched. Uh, I say all of that because we're going to get to the point where we see him murder the children of Bethlehem in just a moment. You've got to know what kind of man you're dealing with here. So Herod has these wise men come to him from the east. They came to Jerusalem. Now, here's the deal. <clears throat> the references that are given to them, uh, we would safely refer to them as king makers. Okay? They're referred to as magi. Uh, there are certain references to them that refer to them as Chaldeans. There are a number of things that leave us to assume that most safely they were probably from Babylon. And the knowledge that they have about the coming Messiah, they see the star and they begin to travel. The knowledge they have about the coming Messiah leads us to believe, based upon other elements too, that they probably gained this knowledge from Daniel. Daniel was in charge of the Magi, right? He had been put in charge of the eunuchs, if you've read through the book of Daniel, and he began to instruct all of them in their wisdom. And it seems that Daniel left within the order of the Magi the wisdom and the knowledge of the coming of the Messiah. So when the star appears, they come. By this time in history, what these men do is the biggest thing they do for royal courts is they keep very accurate records of family lineage. And they're invited. It's almost ceremonially. It's not a real position. But they're invited because of the accuracy of their records to the crowning of kings. So when kings are going to be inaugurated into their position, these magi, these Chaldeans, would be invited and they would come and there would be a moment in the ceremony where they would actually request the lineage. And the, the Magi would read and say, we confirm as an organization that this one is the rightful heir to the throne. This is the rightful king in this setting, which is very significant about the conversation that's about to unfold. They come following the star, and we'll discuss that a little bit more, and they present themselves to Herod, and we'll read the question that they have is, where is the one who is born king of the Jews? Okay, now you got to understand, right? Because Herod is the king of the Jews. He's been appointed by Rome. 
but he's also an incredibly mentally unstable man. And for somebody to show up and say to the one who is presently the king of the Jews, where's the one who is rightfully the king of the Jews? Where is the man who's supposed to be sitting on the throne that you're currently sitting on? That's the atmosphere that we're dealing with right here. So they come saying, where is he? He was born king of the Jews. We've seen a star in the east and we've come to worship him. And that's literally the sense of divinity, right? This isn't the sense of kingly court. We've come to honor him. It's the idea of we know him to be divine and we've come here to worship. So they're not just of the political realm. There is a spiritual atmosphere with their arrival that says we're here to crown the king and we're here to worship the God that is represented in this man, who he is. So it says in verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. That doesn't mean like, oh, that's perplexing. It's the idea of you watch his countenance change and you're thinking, I need to get out of this room because the environment just got really dangerous, right? A man who has no restraint and absolute authority is now beat red. The veins are standing out of his neck and he looks like he wants to kill somebody. So here he is troubled and it says, and all Jerusalem with him. In other words, word went out from that royal courtroom to the entire community. Bad things are about to go down. Herod is presently losing his mind and somebody just walked in here and said he's not the rightful king to the throne. The community is shaken by this announcement. So he's troubled all Jerusalem with him. When he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes, right? And you say all the chief priests. Well, we know of at least two, right? <laughs> there's the rightful chief priest. And then there's the one that Rome has appointed so that they can keep their hand in the till and continue to manipulate the people. And there may have been others based upon what we're reading. So he gathers the chief priests, the scribes of the people. Those are today we might describe as lawyers, people that knew the law with a perfect sense. He inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. There was a common feeling amongst the people that the, the Christ, the Messiah, if he were born at this time, would surely be born in Jerusalem. So, so that common opinion is leaving confusion amongst the people because, as we're going to see, they confess he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. The only reason that he has to inquire is because there is this confusion of opinion. So he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophets. And they're quoting Micah chapter 5, verse 2, where Micah the prophet said, but almost 500 years earlier, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. 
So he calls them in and has a secret meeting. And the reason that he wants to keep it secret is because he's going to launch a military strike against the town of Bethlehem and kill all of the male children under two years of age. So, so he doesn't want to create a complete uproar in the, the courts of the time. He wants to handle this discreetly. Not that that's obviously honorable. He just doesn't want to create any more political difficulty for himself than he has to. So he's inquiring secretly because he has murder in mind. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. Now this is, this is one of the key elements that also tells us that Jesus is quite a bit older, right? We have, we have terms we use in our culture. And if we were in this courtroom right here, and uh, I'm going to send you out to find the uh, child we're referencing here. If I said to you, go find the newborn, that has a very specific connotation. If I say to you, go find the toddler, right, that has another connotation. If I say to you, go find the adolescent, right, I mean, we don't speak like this, but these terms in our culture have very specific definitions. The young child referenced here very specifically refers to a child who's begun to talk and who has begun to walk, right? We call them toddlers because they toddle around, right? They're, they're beginning to move into a much older state. We wouldn't refer to as a, a newborn as a toddler, right? I mean, it, it is linguistically inappropriate, and so it is here. The, the, young, the reference of a young child is re referring to an older child. When you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. So he hasn't let his murderous plan out of his mouth to anyone yet. He's trying to use deception, and he's not going to go worship. He's just like, hey, if you can give me the exact GPS coordinates, we'll send a hit squad right to that house, is what he's thinking. He needs to know the specific location. You know, he's going to just use the broadsword and slaughter everyone he can to try and hit the target. But if he can go in and just surgically kill the one child that he wants to target, that's what he's trying to do right here. Really murderous man. Verse 9. When they heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. Just want to clear up one more thing in regard to the star of the east and the travel and all these different things, okay? Uh, let's be clear. These men were in the east, okay? And they saw the star in the west. So sometimes Jesus' star is referred to as an eastern star. Hey, well, really, it would be a western star, right? They're in the east, and they've come from the east towards the west to find this location. Now, you're going to find books and you're going to find movies and publications about what is this star. And there's you know, all these different astrologers who've got all these different maps and all these different things. And bottom line is, this is a supernatural star. Okay? It wasn't there 
And then it was there. And it moved. They followed it. And then it came to a point where they have very accurate measurement systems at this time. They're navigating the world by ship. And they're able to sight stars and look at when it's exactly above you. So we're going to read in a moment that it came to rest over the house where Mary and Joseph were. It seems that part of what's being said is they've been following this thing with a geographical accuracy. And they've come to a place where it's stopped moving. And according to their measurements, maybe it's just line of sight, right? I mean, if, if, if you are in an open field and every direction you look to the horizon, there's not another home and the star is right there. And no matter where you move around the house, the star seems to be directly above the house. I mean, it could be that crude, okay, that the star is directly overhead. That's what they're saying. They saw the star appear. These guys study the stars. Wait a second. New star. So... Everybody's fascinated with the new star. They're looking in their charts and their books and saying, this is what Daniel told us, perhaps. That's what's going on. And then they notice, well, hey, it's in a different place than it was last night. And they become stirred enough with it that they travel. And they've traveled to the point where now it's directly overhead. Uh, that's, that's not an, a new star like we would think of it. It's not something you know that people want to attribute to, oh, it's this planet it's that planet it's this star it's that star my suspicion is it served its purpose and you can't see it anymore or it's there and uh, we we just account it amongst the rest of the stars it was new to them and they followed it they heard the king they departed they followed this that they had seen it says and they had seen the east when they went before them till it came and stood where the young child was that reference, again, of young child is the same as what Herod used with a maturity attached to it. So we're going to see that he's counting two years. Herod's counting two years. And they think that at this point, Jesus is close to that age. Mary and Joseph have a home where they're dwelling. And this is a young child that's in the home. It's not the manger. And these men come to visit Jesus. Let's look at a little more. Verse 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child and Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And again, you guys, that's the, the, the sense of worshipping the divine. It is not just that they kneeled and bowed and prostrated themselves before a king. It is the sense that they understood that they were in the presence of God. Emmanuel, God amongst us. These men have come with a heart of worship, and they're rendering that worship to Jesus Christ in this moment. When they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, I want to dwell on that for just a moment. Okay, again, traditions versus word of God. Historically, when the Magi were called as the Chaldeans to come and verify a king, it's a massive entourage. Okay, 
There can be as many as 20. There can be as many as hundreds in this entourage that come. Think about this for a moment. If they bear the authority to show up and say, that man right there is the rightful king to a throne, somebody could unseat a king, right, by overthrowing their authority. So when they come, they're members of court, and they have security with them. Right? We see, you know, we sing and we say, we three kings of Orient are, right? Bearing gifts, travels of art. We say three because there are three gifts. Okay, well, here's a significance. There's more to it, but here's a significance. Gold is a, king, a kingly gift. That's what you would present to a king, right? Frankincense is a spice that is used in the Jewish priesthood. Myrrh is an aloe-based ointment that you would embalm a body with. These are strange gifts, right? If you're a peasant girl who's married to a construction worker and somebody shows up and gives you a gift fit for a king, that's intriguing. And they also give you a gift that almost exclusively belongs to the priesthood. And they also present you with a burial plot certificate and a casket. You reading what I'm saying? They bring him embalming ointment. Just, I, I mean, you know, baby shower gifts, not exactly appropriate. You know what I'm saying? Just, we appreciate your thoughtfulness and we appreciate your planning for the future but planning for our child's death somehow seems offensive, right? Uh, they bring these gifts. I think it's inappropriate to say there were only, and we say kings, right? Three kings, uh, probably because they were king makers. That's probably how that tradition comes into play. Three gifts presented by these king makers to a toddler in the home of Mary and Joseph is what you're looking at. Again, you want to sing the songs. You want to set up your little manger scene and put the three wise men at the manger. There's nothing wrong with this at all, okay? Where it runs into trouble is if someone becomes a serious student of the word and gets to the place where they realize there's a gross inaccuracy here. What you have to do is be ready to say, yes, there is. Because the traditions of the church, you know where most of these traditions emerged from? The Dark Ages. We call them the Dark Ages because there was no spiritual illumination. People did not read the Word of God. Right? The Enlightenment had not come to the worldwide culture. It was only after the word became readily available to the common people and they began to read that wisdom and knowledge began to expand and we exited the dark ages, right? Education and truth in God's word illuminated the hearts, you know, soul and mind of the human race. These traditions emerged from the dark ages where people did not read the word of God. They just handed down as tradition from generation to generation the things that the church ignorantly gave to them. Three gifts must be three kings, right? Well, they must be kings, you know, because they have kingly gifts. No, they're king makers. 
these men that come. With that, let me just extend it a little further. I don't mean to offend anybody. Santa Claus. Okay? I say it's extremely dangerous to teach Santa Claus to your children. Okay? My children have all grown up. They're adults now, have their own children, their own families. They've all grown up as children knowing the tradition of Santa Claus and enjoying immensely the tradition of Santa Claus while they simultaneously knew the truth about the origin of the tradition. As little children, they knew the truth. about They don't go to the mall, there's Santa Claus. Wonderful, that's great. You know, relatives, you know, have a Santa Claus come over to the house. Wonderful. Sit up in the lap, talk about what they want for Christmas. No problem. They know that's not Santa Claus. Right? I mean, maybe I'm bursting your bubble right now. You know, I don't know. Here's the issue, right? Think about what's been attributed to Santa Claus, right? <clears throat> you better watch out. You better not cry, right? He sees you while you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows when you're bad, bad or good, be good for goodness sake. Wait a second. There's only one being that's capable of that. That's the Christ child we're reading about right now. Okay, so if you take characteristics that belong to Jesus and you ascribe them to an elf that doesn't exist, and then they find out the elf doesn't exist, what are they going to think about the one who actually has these capabilities? He doesn't exist either. Santa's not real. Jesus is not real. That's the assumption. Teach the truth, right? The tradition, if it's taught as a tradition, doesn't have anywhere near the harmful impact as if it's taught as though it were true. Here, we have God's word. I recommended you Dr. Ivan Panet's work before we began. If you thought I was just sort of tagging the front end of that, you need to discover the mathematical, numeric importance of God's word in its construction. And understand, this, this book was written by the hand of God, not men. And it hasn't been corrupted. Oh, it's going to change and translate and change. No, 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 no. We have the Dead Sea Scrolls. Thousands of years between the Dead Sea Scrolls and what we have here. And we look back at the Dead Sea Scrolls and compare this to that, and they're identical, unchanged. No, it hasn't been changed. It hasn't been corrupted. It hasn't been diluted. The promise of Jesus Christ's coming for thousands of years being fulfilled here in this moment, we're about to celebrate this weekend. And in that celebration, we need to pick our eyes up and look forward to the promises that are ahead of us. And they are quick coming. The things that are developing, I said, I'm very tempted to just go into a whole current events Bible study about what's going on in the world right now. We are so close to the book of Revelation. It's incredible. It's incredible what's going on around us. And like I said, on New Year's Eve, we're going to sit right here and we're going to have a lengthy Bible study on what is going on in the world around us. Now, Ukraine, Russia, United States, Joe Biden's influence, the stuff that's going on right now, uh, get your Bible out and read Ezekiel 38. That hasn't been fulfilled yet, right? Damascus still has to be destroyed to where it will be uninhabitable Again, Syria, Damascus, Russia's involvement there. There are things afoot right now that are incredible. 
incredible. What we see being fulfilled right here was a very literal event. Very literal event. And there are very literal events ahead of us. The trustworthiness of this needs to convince us of that. Does that make sense to us all this morning? As we approach Christmas, the thing that you need to be focusing on is the coming gift of Jesus Christ. This was the first occasion of his advent and his gift to humanity. There's one directly ahead of us. How soon? I don't know. Maybe before we get out of this room. We'll see. I can tell you this, that what is so accurately fulfilled here will be perfectly fulfilled in what's to come. Look for the, the gift that the Lord has prepared for you. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and we'll pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its accuracy. We pray that you would help us to be very serious students of your word. That we would not take lightly religion. We would not take lightly the Bible. We would not take lightly our faith or Christianity. That we would know and understand <clears throat> that these things are still transpiring right in front of us right now. That your clock is still wound. Your hands are still ticking. And the time is close at hand for the fulfillment of what you've promised in the scripture. Help us to be men and women who are watchful and ready. With that, Lord, I pray that your gift of salvation and the gospel would be in our mouths and that we would share it with the world around us. That in the grocery store, in the checkout, at the gas pump, in school, at work, wherever you may have planted us, we would be faithful ministers of your salvation. Use us. Fill us with your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.